Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we move further into chapter two in our study, Knowing and Growing, from 2 Peter. Continuing the thread we began in last week's study concerning false prophets, we take a closer look at not only what we Christians have been saved from, but also what sort of judgment awaits the ungodly, particularly counterfeit teachers, in the certainty of destruction and deliverance. From Pastor David Wilson. Second Peter chapter 2, in my opinion, is one of the most forthright, rough, tell it like it is passages in all the Bible. Peter is in prison. He is probably in his 60s. He knows that his days are numbered. And he's upset because the believers that have come to Christ are now being infiltrated with false teaching. Oh, it sounds good. It's close. They even use Christian terms, but it's false. Some are scoffing at the second coming of Christ. You'll see that in chapter 3. They are ridiculing the believers, and, and Peter knows that he's going to be leaving, and he wants more than anything for them not to fall by the wayside. He doesn't want them to be led astray by erroneous teaching. And so verse, excuse me, chapter two is pretty rough, pretty forthright. I mean, he's in their face. And we've already looked at some of the false teaching last week in chapter two, verses one two and three, the first half of chapter three, describing them. And, and to tell you the truth, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> because next Sunday, when we look at this again, he calls them about every name he can think of. He even calls them dogs and hogs, sick dogs, slimy hogs. That may even be the title. I hadn't decided yet. <laughs> but today, would you stand while I read Beginning in verse 3, I really want to focus on the second half of verse 3 and down through the first half of verse 10. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Now, this is one long sentence. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell... And delivered them into chains of darkness to, re, to be reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to, be to, to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds 
then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. That's all one sentence. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask you today to speak clearly to us. We pray for those who are not ready to face judgment. We are grateful for those of us who have been delivered from judgment. And pray, Father, that Christians would understand the seriousness of sin and that the lost might come to know you, that you would open their eyes to see that now's the time to come to you in salvation because judgment is coming. And so we ask now that you make clear your word to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Anyone who is aware of what is happening in our day will come to the conclusion that we live in a very permissive society. One that is running rampant with open and blatant sin of every kind. This anti-Christian spirit of humanism and worldliness and materialism and immorality and naturalism has even bombarded the so-called Christian church and has very subtly affected Bible-believing churches. Christianity is so weak that it's no longer making an impact upon the culture. Rather, culture is making an impact upon the church. And one of the reasons or the major reasons that the church is so weak today is because it is not being taught the Bible. It's not being taught the Word of God. Now, I'm speaking generalities. You're being taught the Word of God by in the Sunday school and in here. But many churches are not being taught the Word of God. The Bible's being compromised. It's being rationalized. Sometimes it's disregarded whatsoever. You don't even have to have a Bible to go to some churches. But why hasn't God already judged us? Now, what I'm going to talk to you about today is judgment. No preacher likes to preach on judgment. We don't like to hear about judgment. We don't like to hear about the coming judgment of God because it's scary and it ought to scare you. However, if you're a child of God, you got nothing to worry about. So you need to remember that. You just remember Jesus saves and you remember that Jesus paid it all and that you've accepted him and committed your life to him. You don't have to worry about the coming judgment that we're talking about here. But if you don't know Jesus, you have every reason to be afraid. In fact, how do they say it? Be afraid. Be very much afraid. Why hasn't God already brought judgment on this land? You see, that's what the scoffers were saying. They were saying to Peter, you know, you've been talking about Jesus coming back. He hadn't come back yet. Where's all this judgment that God's going to be bringing? And so they were basically ridiculing that and saying, there's not going to be a judgment. You don't have anything to worry about. But one of the reasons God is holding back judgment is because we know that it's going to happen after the second or the rapture, the coming of Christ. There'll be judgment on the earth. Another reason is that there are a lot of true Christians in the world today who are praying for America. They're praying for our world. And that's holding back some of it. 
And then probably most importantly, God being the gracious God that he is, is waiting for more people to come to know him. He may be waiting on you today, my friend. How long has he been waiting on you? How long has he been waiting for you to come to him? Because one day the judgment is going to happen. And we can expect judgment for all ungodliness. Now the scoffer may say, well, I don't see any judgment. After all, we're powerful. This is the 21st century. We're powerful. We're rich. We have prestige. Where's this judgment you Christians talk about? Well, folks, I want to tell you, just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Because the scripture is very clear, and Peter is very clear here, that the judgment of God is coming one day. So with that in mind, let's look at this passage. This is not going to be your favorite sermon. It's not my favorite sermon. But if we're going to talk about the love of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ, you need to understand what you're being saved from. When you say, I'm saved, what are you saved from? You're saved from the coming judgment of God. First of all, I want you to notice the assurance of judgment. Look at part verse 3. That last phrase says, for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Now, what does Peter mean when he says their judgment is not idle from long ago? Well, verses 4 through the first part of verse 10 explain that. And the expression from long ago is also seen in chapter 3, verse 5, were of old or long ago. And he's speaking in, in chapter 3, he's speaking of creation and the separation of land and water and later to the, what, that the world is going to be inundated by water and the judgment of Noah's, Noah's flood. But he's, he's telling us the, that in ancient times there was judgment of God and that has a direct bearing on you and me today. We've sort of gotten this idea in our society in general that God doesn't look at sin as sin anymore. He's kind of gotten soft in his old age and that he just sort of tolerates everything and he's sort of gotten over this idea of judgment one day. But that's not true. In fact, judgment will come on those who don't know him through Jesus Christ. Now, the assurance of judgment, that should be a 3B instead of a 3A. <laughs> That's my fault. My notes are not inerrant. The word of God is inerrant, but my notes are not for sure. When we talk about judgment, it's a scary thing. I got amused by hearing of, about a preacher that was drawing heavily upon his supply of imagery to describe the day of final judgment. And he took a lot out of the book of Revelation. And he said, thunder will boom, rivers will overflow, flames will shoot down from heaven and earth, and the earth will quake violently, darkness will fall all over the world. And this little boy in the congregation nudged his dad and said, Dad, do you think they'll let school out early that day? <laughs> It's a scary thing. It's something we don't like to think about. I don't like to think about the people that I know without Jesus who are going to face this one day. They may laugh at it. They may light of it. They may not want to hear about it. But the fact is, just because you and I don't want it to happen or somebody doesn't believe it's going to happen does not mean it's not going to. In fact, 
what Peter is saying here is that you can be assured. You can be assured that judgment's going to happen one day. It's coming. We don't know when, but it's coming. Well, Peter gives three accounts of judgment in verses 4 through 8. He illustrates God's judgment against rebellion and ungodliness. Now, you need to keep in mind that he's giving these as evidence of the claim that God is able to protect his own and also to deal with the unrighteous, specifically in this case, false teachers. It's also interesting that it doesn't matter how high they are, the angels. It doesn't matter how many they are, the ancient world. It doesn't matter how low they are, the perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're all going to face judgment. The first account or the first example is the fall of the angels. For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Sounds to me like they've already been judged, but they're actually being held for more judgment. Now, many reputable scholars understand this text to refer to an obscure incident that's in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And in those verses, it says the sons of God, which are interpreted as demons or fallen angels, the sons of God took wives from the daughters of men, resulting in a dominant race called the Nephilim. Now, this is right before the flood. But it's one of the results of the flood. And and this interpretation of Genesis 6 was prevalent among the first century Jews. It was even explained in a book called the Book of Enoch in the first century B.C. It's not in the Bible, by the way. The Book of Enoch is not there, so don't look. (laughs) And in favor of this interpretation here and in Jude 7 is the story was common in Jewish literature. And these three examples that Peter uses are all found in Genesis. So that makes sense. And the incident in Genesis 6, which led to the flood, would explain why some demons are now chained in the pits of darkness. There is a variation of this interpretation which would say that demons would fill men or or possessed men is the word I'm looking for. And then they had children with the ungodly women. And one of those is probably accurate. The fact is we really don't know for sure because none of us were there. But there's a third view that says the sons of God refers to the line, the, the uh, lineage of Seth in Genesis 5, and that they married godless women leading to the degrading sinfulness of the human race. I don't go for that one. I believe it was something that had to do with the, the fallen angels corrupting the human race. However that happened, I don't know. But God saw that it needed a reboot, and he sent the flood. The point is, don't get hung up on the angels or the fallen angels here. That's not the point of the, of the, the, the emphasis here. The point is that judgment came 
And that God is, has already judged the fallen angels. He's got them held in hell. Now, the word hell there is the word for Tartarus. It's the only place you find it in the scripture this way. We think of hell. We're thinking of the lake of fire. Hades is the place of the dead. And, you know, there's a lot of different terminology. But hell, the lake of fire, no one's really been cast into that until the very end at the great white throne judgment when their books are open and people are not found in the book of life. They're cast into the what you and I call hell. But the place of the dead, this place of Tartarus, is a place of punishment already. They're already in turmoil. And we see that from the gospel of account when, when the rich man died and he was in torment already. But he's still not in the lake of fire. He's still not in the place that you and I think of, of called hell. But, but it, it refers to a place lower than Hades, or the place of the dead, where the especially wicked were consigned. Another way to put it is this way. God judged these fallen angels by confining them in a really awful place until the day of judgment. Now, don't get caught up about who the angels are and lose sight of the fact that Peter's making, that God is powerful enough to judge the angels. And angels are above us. Did you know that? In fact, Peter tells us that they're more powerful than us. We'll see that next week. But they rebelled. And we know that Lucifer rebelled against God. A third of the angels with him, they were cast out. Some of them are being held. I believe some more that are coming out of this pre-flood um, incident are being held. But the point is, God can judge the angels. He's going to judge the world. The Bible refers to hell 162 times. Jesus spoke about hell three times more than he did heaven. It's a real place. A recent poll indicates that 89% of Americans believe in heaven, 73% believe in hell. And when they were asked where they think they will go when they die, three out of four, 75% said they're going to go to heaven, while 2% believe they will end up in hell. I'm afraid the percentage of ghosts going to hell is going to be a lot higher than 2%. Because Matthew 7:13, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. In fact, that gate's so narrow, it's only through Jesus. Only one way. And a lot of people today thinking, you know, I'm going to get there. I'm just going through a different route. No, there's only one road. It's very narrow. It's through Jesus Christ. Amen. The second example of judgment is the flood on the ungodly. Verse 5 says, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah... One of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. The flood destroyed all people and every living creature except those on the ark. That story's in the Bible to warn us of a day of judgment that's going to come on the whole world. Peter refers to the flood again in chapter 3. I've already mentioned that. And he makes the comparison that just as in the ancient world, the world was destroyed by water, the coming judgment, the world will be destroyed by fire. 
Now, the flood was a deluge of disaster. In fact, the word is cataclysmos, which we get our word cataclysmic. It literally means a deluge that came down upon. The flood was universal, not local. You see, there are people, I even had them in school, in the religion department say the flood was local. It was just localized. There wasn't a worldwide flood, but it's interesting. You can go all over this world, and there's indications that there was a worldwide flood, regardless of what scientists tell you. You see, the Scripture says, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heavens were opened. In Genesis 7, 19, it says, the waters rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished, Genesis 7, 19 to 21. And the flood punished the ungodly, those who refused to listen to Noah. I'll talk about him in a moment. And by the way, if you haven't had an opportunity to go see the ark that they built according to biblical dimensions, that's, I don't know if it's in Kentucky or Ohio, it's in Kentucky, isn't it? We were there. I just didn't know where I was. Uh, we flew into Cincinnati, then drove over there, and they said we were in Kentucky. So, but if you ever get a chance to see it, you need to go see it. It's incredible. It's incredible. And you can see how feasible it was that there were two kinds of every animal. And that how they survived and how it all worked. If you ever get a chance, I highly recommend it. And you don't have to owe me any um, royalty fees for that for, at all. But the total destruction of the false teachers will be as unexpected and sudden as the flood in Noah's day. And then the third example are the fire on two cities. When God's judgment was unleashed upon Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, verse 6 says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. This might be the most striking judgment in the Bible. Because you see... Sodom and Gomorrah were two of the greatest trade centers of the day. They were wealthy, well-known. Incidentally, for many years, the false teachers and the scoffers and the liberals said there was no such place as Sodom and Gomorrah. But now there's documentation outside the Bible that shows that Sodom and Gomorrah existed. In fact, the uh, Eblaites, Eblaites were trading with people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were powerful cities. And the biblical account says they were caused to burn to ashes. That's why you can't find any place. Archaeological evidence in that part of the realm of the south end of the Dead Sea shows that it's reliable that they, it was reduced to ashes. God condemned the cities. Why? Because of ungodliness. Genesis 13, 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Now, folks, the exceeding wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah resulted in homosexuality and lesbianism. 
It was the lifestyle of most of the inhabitants of those cities, Genesis 19, 1 through 8. Don't take my word for it. Look it up. These cities were famous for their affluence. They were wealthy. And above all, they were also known for their gross immorality because, see, materialism made them soft, and they thought that they had outgrown the idea of God. We don't need God anymore. And so they attempted to fill that void in their life with immorality, with adultery and fornication, which didn't satisfy, so they went further down the scale, became involved in homosexuality, which is always coming about on a massive scale when a nation turns its back on God. It's not about to bring judgment. It is a result of judgment when God gives them up. Then you see all of this happening. Do I hate homosexuals? I do not. Because I want to tell you, homosexuality can be forgiven. Just like fornication can be forgiven. Just like adultery can be forgiven. So this is not hate speech. It's reality speech compared to the word of God. And we also know that the Canaanites were descendants of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Canaanites were guilty of child sacrifice. Children were put in jars and passed through the fire as a human sacrifice to their gods. There was no respect for human life among those people. So it is not hard to understand this judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah in light of these facts. But I want to tell you something. The United States of America is becoming just like Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, homosexuality is being accepted and being taught as normal, and the human sacrifice of children is now normal. What are you talking about, preacher? What do you call abortion but sacrifice of babies? That's all that is. But I also want to remind you, even though I sound angry, I'm angry at the sin, I want you to know that abortion can be forgiven. God will forgive it. Homosexuality can be forgiven. Fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, can be forgiven. Pornography can be forgiven. Adultery can be forgiven. Stealing can be forgiven. Envy can be forgiven. I can't name all the sins. I ain't got time. But I want you to understand. Someone has said, God does not pay at the end of every day, but at the end, he pays. Sodom had to pay, and our modern society in America is going to pay. If we disregard the scriptures... We're going to face judgment. Why? Why is homosexuality, abortion being accepted in some churches today? Because they've changed this as false teachings, what that is. Because you, if you try to explain away or find a loophole or try to discredit the word of God, then you can make it say anything you want to. Folks, you never have to take for granted anything I say. You study the word of God yourself. I don't claim to be perfect. I don't claim to have everything exactly right. Even though in my heart I feel like I do, but I know I don't. I mean, I'm just being human just like you. I think I'm right. But it doesn't matter what I think. What does God's word say? And you can't explain it away. It's as plain as the nose on our face. The early church was filled with people who had come out of sinful, pagan lifestyles. And I want to tell you, when you meet Jesus, you don't stay the same. Now, 
After those three examples of judgment, he then states two absolutes of judgment. There's only two absolutes here. Either or. It's not both and, it's either or. Speaking of judgment, we don't like to think about it. I, I, I read of a fellow who, who had been a rascal most of his life, and he was in the hospital for surgery. And coming out from under the anesthetic, he noticed that all the blinds had been closed on his window. It was pretty dark in the room. And he complained to the nurse that he couldn't see out. And why did she close all the blinds in the first place? And she said, would you just calm down? There's a big fire burning across the street, and we didn't want you to wake up and think the operation was a failure. <laughs> The first absolute I want you to notice is in verse 9. And right in the middle of this black, dark passage is verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of the temptations. So the deliverance of true believers. Folks, listen to me. You and I live in an ungodly world. We live in a world that's getting worse and worse and worse. But God never forgets who you are. The Lord will deliver you and me. We are going to be delivered from judgment. Verse 9 says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. He already mentioned two people here, Noah and Lot. Noah. Noah preached over 100 years probably close to 120 years. And the only reason we know he was a preacher of righteousness is right here in verse 9. Excuse me, right here in verse 5. It says he was a preacher of righteousness. Do we know, do we, I don't know if he preached from a, a, a podium or a pulpit. I don't know if every time he hammered something on that ark, it was a, a message. But for a hundred, over 100 years, he preached the coming judgment of God on that ungodly nation, an ungodly world. He never had a convert outside of his family, not one. That would be discouraging. And you would think, well, God's about to destroy the world, and he's going to reboot it. He's going to be a reset. And he delivers Noah and his family. I want you to know the day's coming when there's going to be a reset again here on the earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will pass away. But you know who the scripture says the Lord knows those who are his. And you don't have to worry. We'll be taken out before the judgment falls. I really believe that in my heart. I believe that we're going to be taken. The rapture, Jesus is coming. We, were, we are going to be delivered from the wrath to come. We are being taken out. So if you're a child of God, you don't have anything to worry about. And, and here's something else. It just blows my mind a little bit. It, it says that he delivered Lot, and he calls Lot righteous three times. Now, only the Holy Spirit could have impressed him with that. Because I don't know if you've read about Lot, but Lot's not the example of righteousness you want to follow. But he still delivered Lot, Abraham's nephew. Lot, the scripture says that righteousness was imputed to Abraham when Abraham believed God. You see, Abraham didn't earn his salvation. God 
knew Abraham believed in him by faith and God gave him righteousness. That's the same thing that happens to you when you repent of your sin and you commit your life to Jesus. God imputes to you righteousness of Jesus. You don't have your own righteousness. You can't do enough. You have the sinless, perfect righteousness of Christ that's covered you and washed you and given to you, imputed to you, the same kind of righteousness that was given to Abraham. But it was also given to Lot. But Lot made some terrible choices. When he had a chance to choose, Lot chose to go towards Sodom. And you find him out there for a while, the next thing you know, he's sitting in the gate. And then the next thing you know, he's living in the city. And the city is so vile, the scripture says that it tormented him. He knew better. He knew this wasn't the way you're supposed to be. He knew better, but the scripture says it, it tormented him it, 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 uh, night and day. Did you notice what it said? The filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And so Lot was in a place he wasn't supposed to be. And you know what? He was without a mission. He did not influence anybody in that city. When God told Abraham, we're going to destroy this city, Abraham said, look, if I can, if I can find 50 righteous people, will you spare it? Sure. Well, he couldn't find 50. He said, how about 40? And he went 30, 20, all the way down to 10. He said, can I find, if we can find 10 righteous people, will that be okay? God said, yeah. Lot, his wife, his daughters who are married, son-in-laws, and two married, unmarried daughters, that's eight. That's all they could find. And not only that, his family didn't really do well because when they were having to leave, first of all, an angel had to grab Lot by the hand and drag him out of the city. And he said, don't look back. And then his wife turned back. She turned into a pillar of salt. His two oldest daughters who were married laughed at him and ridiculed. They perished. So the only ones that were escaped were Lot and his two unmarried daughters. And then I'll let you read the other accounts that didn't turn out well either. And so I struggle with this saying, Lord, what in the world? Why did he call Lot righteous? Because the righteousness did not come from him. It came from God. Aren't you glad? You can't get righteous enough on your own. It has to be given to you by God. But it also shows him doing a few things right, even though that were not the decisions you and I would have made. He did try to protect the angels that were coming in there, but the way he tried it was, <laughs> I'm not going to go there. You should read it for yourself. What I want you to see is that no matter how sinful a place you live in, God still knows who you are. And, and the, righteousness, the righteousness that you were given when you received Christ and committed your life to him is still there. You see, you don't hold on to God. He holds on to you. No matter how sinful a place you live, he holds on to you. Charles Spurgeon said, the Lord does not permit his children to sin successfully. 
I've heard it said this way. Some Christians have too much of the Lord to really enjoy the world, but too much of the world to really enjoy the Lord. And today we've kind of gotten this idea that the more we separate ourselves from the wicked, the better off we're going to be. That's kind of like the Pharisees. You know, they didn't want to be unclean around anybody. You and I need to understand that we're going to live in a sinful world and we're going to be around those sinners. But we're not going to be contaminated. We're going to be, God knows who we are. In fact, if, if, if we're not around sinners, how are they going to know about Jesus? It's not an excuse to go, go try to live like sinners. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? We can't isolate ourselves. We've got to share the gospel with people. So what I want you to see is that the coming judgment, if you have turned from your sin, that's called repentance. Now listen to me. I just read to you out of Matthew 7. It says that broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many going down that. You're down. You know what? God doesn't have to send you to hell. You're already headed that way. But you turn from your sin. Say, God, I've changed my mind. I, I want to come to you. I want to live for you. I want you to save me. God will forgive you. You believe in Jesus Christ that he died for you. He rose again. And you commit your life to him. Make him the boss. Make him the Lord of your life. Here I am, Lord. Save me. I want to live for you. If you've done that, you have no worries about judgment. You're not going to face the judgment of God. You're not going to face the wrath of God. Isn't that good? Because Jesus paid it all. The other absolute is the destruction of false teachers and all ungodly people. These teachers are going to, you're going to see how they are ridiculing and they are saying it's not going to happen. You Christians are a bunch of neurotics. You don't know what you're talking about. What I want you to see is that even though you've seen the fall of the angels and you've seen the flood on the ancient world and you've seen the fire on the, the two cities, did you know their judgment has yet to come? Now, verse 10 says they're under punishment right now. I think it's verse 10 or 9. Now, verse 9, they're already in under punishment. They already know they're in turmoil because we get a picture of that in the Gospels where the rich man and Lazarus died and the rich man was in torment and so forth. And the angels are in under punishment being held in darkness for being reserved till the day of judgment. But folks, I want you to understand something even though they've already been judged on this earth, they have not faced the eternal judgment. And I also want you to understand that the ultimate judgment is not temporal, but it's eternal. You see, the ultimate judgment is going to be found, you already read about it in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment when books are open and those without the book of life, not in the book of life, will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. There are false teachers today who will tell you that after you die, you get another chance. They call it purgatory. Sometimes others baptize for the dead. I want to tell you there's not a truth in that. It's false. Once you die, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for men once to die, and after this the judgment. No other chance. Your chance is now. You either find Jesus now or you'll never have him. So, folks, 
Nobody likes to talk about judgment. But let me explain what the Lord's done with this illustration. A lot of your grandparents, and you know, if there was ever a perfect human, it's grandchild. I say that facetiously. Grandpa was walking across the room when he saw little Jeffrey standing in his playpen. Jeffrey was sniffling and his red eyes were a clear sign that he'd been in trouble and he'd been crying and he looked so cute standing there in his diaper and his baseball t-shirt. Grandpa just couldn't resist coming to his aid. So Jeffrey's eyes lit up when he saw Grandpa and he lifted his chubby arms and he said, out, Grandpa, out. Grandpa reached down to rescue the lad. A voice from the kitchen door said, no, Dad, don't pick him up. It was the firm voice of law and order. <laughs> Jeffrey's mom. And as she walked into the room drying her hands with a dish towel, she said, Jeffrey, you're being punished and you know why. I told you that you have to stay in that playpen until I said you could leave. So please, Dad, just leave him there. What could Grandpa do? It's hard for him to resist the tears of his grandson, but surely he didn't want to interfere with a mother's discipline. The rules had been broken and the punishment must be endured. He tried to read the newspaper, but ignore the little boy for a while, but he found himself just watching his grandson more than reading the words on the page. He started to get up and leave the room, but he didn't want to betray his little pal. What could he do? Love found a way. Since Grandpa couldn't take Jeffrey out of the playpen, he decided to get in the playpen. <laughs> he climbed in as gently as his old joints would allow, and he sat down with his grandson, and he said, if you're in the playpen, buddy, I'm in the playpen. How long are you in for? <laughs> and when Jeffrey found his grandpa with him in the playpen, suddenly his captivity turned to comfort. That's what Jesus did for us. Amen. As much as God may have wanted to pick us up, we were all guilty, deserved the punishment of death and hell, but Jesus Christ became a living, breathing person. He came down into our playpen called the earth, taking on flesh and blood for one reason, so he could die in our place. For the wages of sin is death. Philippians 2, 6 said, Jesus being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of nothing. And be, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Many of you are familiar with Howard Smith's hymn. One of the verses in that hymn says, Souls in danger, look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows his will obey. He, your savior, wants to be. Be saved today. Love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else could help. Jesus lifted me. If you don't know Jesus, listen carefully. What are you basing your eternity on? Were you sprinkled as a baby? 
Were you confirmed as a baby? Were, were you raised a certain religion or denomination? Don't be one of those people that believes God's going to save everybody because there's only one person that could die for our sin who was sinless. That was Jesus. And the only one that could be raised from the dead was Jesus. And the only one that can save you and impute righteousness to you is Jesus. And if you've never received Jesus, you don't get him by osmosis. Some of you think that you've sat in church long enough that you've just absorbed salvation. I'm sorry, we can't give it to you. You have to commit your life to him. You have to commit your life to him. Nobody can do it for you. Baptism doesn't save you. You have to commit your life to Jesus through faith. And give him your life. As a result of that, your life will be different. You will not keep living in your sin completely. You're going to see that next week. And and you're also going to know that you'll want to be baptized because it's the public identification. I want people to know I've given my life to Jesus. It's not an option. Jesus said, do that. He set the example. He said, do that. And so if you don't know Jesus, you've been warned Judgment's coming. But you don't have to be afraid if you know him. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you, Pastor David. In verses 3 through 10 of 2 Peter 2, the apostle paints a picture for us of three accounts of judgment. The fall of Satan and his demonic angels, the flood upon sinful mankind in Noah's day, and the fire upon the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We closed our study with two absolutes regarding the judgment, the destruction of the ungodly and of counterfeit teachers, but the glorious deliverance of true believers. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.